0: Welcome to our newest project for First Responder Wellness, No One Fights Alone, an in-depth conversation about mental health and addiction in the First Responder space. We're joined by your hosts, Austin Pedersen and Brad Shepard.
1: Welcome to the No One Fights Alone podcast. I'm Brad Shepard alongside my partner and co-host, Austin Pedersen. We're here at the No One Fights Alone podcast uh, to strive to have an in-depth conversation about the challenges faced by those braven men and women who serve our communities out there. Austin, what's up, man?
2: You know what? Not too much, man. It's a beautiful Friday. Uh, Glad to be here. Glad to uh, have the pleasure to to talk about some tough subjects today. I'm, I'm super excited. I mean, we were bullshitting about the weather earlier and, uh, to have somebody on the podcast that has a little bit more snow than us is a rare thing out here in Utah. <laughs> uh, the, the picture that we've seen, I mean, that must've been what, 15 feet high, uh, never seen anything like it. And so, uh, no, just excited to be here and uh, excited to to learn a little bit more about Tim. I know he's a longtime friend of yours. Um, this the first time I got to meet him today, he sounds like he's going to be uh, quite a, a fun guest to have on. So,
1: yeah. Man, Tim is such a great guy, and I got to know him uh, several years ago through this uh, speaking circuit and lecture series. And I'm super excited to have him on today. Uh one because he's a great friend, but two because of his uh background knowledge uh and understanding of this really difficult topic and taboo subject of suicide uh it's it's uh it's gonna be a great ride it's gonna be a fun uh conversation piece uh, but yeah, he sent me a picture uh back i don't know two months ago, maybe or a month ago of that snow that was drifted up it was it was ridiculous uh it was a little tunnel that a walking tunnel. Uh, of snow, and it was absolutely insane. But, you know, uh, Tim, let me set the stage here a little bit. Uh, Tim's a a sheriff up in uh, Cattaraugus County, uh, New York, and uh, I'm just, I'm super excited to have him on. Uh, Let's get him on here and introduce him. Sheriff Tim Wickham, welcome to uh, No One Fights Alone podcast. How are you? I'm doing uh,
3: very well. Thank you. And I'm happy to be here.
1: I am so happy you're here. I'm going to read your bio here a little bit, Tim, and, and uh, I'm going to brag on you because I know you won't. Uh, sheriff Tim Whitcomb uh, became sheriff in Cattaraugus County in 2009 is, and is on his fourth term. Uh, Tim has a, a master's degree in counseling education from St. Bonaventure University, certified police instructor in interview interrogation, uh, basic, and advanced juvenile officer training, investigation of sex crimes, law enforcement response, school violence. Graduate of the uh, 206 session of the FBI's National Academy. Uh, he's received specialized training in crisis negotiation, deat management, uh, sex offense uh, seminars with the New York State Police. He's a SWAT team fit specialist. Uh, SWAT team fitness specialist. Uh, He's an active instructor with the uh, New York State Division of Criminal Justice Services and a a private consult uh, for education seminars in post-traumatic stress disorder and law enforcement suicide. And uh, the way I know him is he's a national speaker slash celebrity uh, on uh, on the speaking circuit. And uh, Tim, I am just, your resume is unbelievable, but I'm so excited to have you here. Thanks for coming on.
3: Well, I appreciate the opportunity. And uh it's good to see your face and it's good to hear your voice again, Brad.
1: Well, let's dive right in it. Um we've uh we've got a kind of a narrow window here, and people's for the listeners here. Um Tim's got a great story, Austin. Uh the that the that I think as we unfold his passion and we start unpacking this story, I think the listeners are gonna absolutely love this. So uh Tim, without really kind of going any further. There's no real way to kick this uh thing off without kicking the door in. Uh tell us uh tell us your story. Tell us really what drives uh you to do what you're doing. We'll get into the lecture piece in just a little bit, but you've got a you've got a pretty crazy story. Let's let's dive into that.
3: Yeah, well um my trajectory into becoming a national speaker is probably not a traditional roadmap for many other people that have done it, it uh, something I never had the foresight to uh predict it's uh more of a path of revelation for me and what I mean by that is uh I went to college for criminal justice because I was smitten with the idea to be a police officer and the career's been a good choice for me it's a it's been a profession that has been very good to me, and I think that my resume is very comparable to anyone else that's been a police officer for 33 years. Now, the last 12 of which I have been blessed to have the opportunity to be the elected sheriff. But prior to that, you know, I I went through the chains very similar to any other officer. I I worked three years of midnights. I had a brief stint uh, as a DARE officer. I spent a few years in a traffic division. And in uh, 1996, about my sixth year on the job, I promoted to detective and I was assigned specifically to work sex crimes. And uh, you know, Cattaraugus County, we're big enough that you get assigned to a specific category or unit in our Criminal Investigation Bureau. But we're small enough that something big happens. you You have to have an eclectic backpack of tools. So even though I was assigned sex crimes. When we got a homicide, you know, the whole family played together and significant burglary or crimes against the elderly. If they had a week off, you had to fill in there. So it was uh, a diversified assignment, although I was assigned to sex crimes and I spent seven and a half years there. And then I promoted to uh, lieutenant and then I was promoted to undersheriff and uh, ultimately found my way. To becoming sheriff on August eighteenth, two thousand nine, when my sheriff, that I was serving for, as his second in command, under sheriff, sent me a text message advising me that he was going to take his life, and where he was, and he asked me to protect his wife, and uh, myself and two other colleagues raced to the scene, in an attempt to uh, divert the path of the plan um but uh, when we got there it was too late and uh you know his name was Dennis John and he wasn't just my sheriff he was my first line supervisor from when I promoted to detective forward in my career so he when i was detective he was my detective sergeant when i was detective sergeant he was chief of detectives when he made under sheriff i made lieutenant and when he made sheriff i made uh I, he chose me to be his under sheriff so he He truly was not just a first-line supervisor, uh, but one of my best friends. And, uh, you know, you do this job for a while. You also get to know that, you know, good people, they make good cops. Great people make great cops. And, I mean, you excel at the other roles in life, you know, father, son, um, husband, wife, daughter, neighbor, coach. Um, it's excelling in the denomination of faith. You know these people that
0: excel at these other roles in life. They it's it, it's pretty easy administratively now to use that philosophy administratively because if you give me somebody with a great moral compass,
3: they'll thrive in a profession where you get to protect and serve people. It's pretty easy math,
2: right?
3: And uh, Dennis John was one of those people, and I was. Very much indebted to him because in, in my developmental window, you know, those first three to five years that you're a cop and you you learn that this job is different from any other job there is. It's it's unique. It gives you a forensic education that's unlike any other job. I mean, these jobs if you wear a badge, this is not like a job in education or a job in uh medicine. You you're going to get to see other people's darkest moments of life two or three times a month and you're going to get a regular consistent steady diet of it and these are things that most people will see two or three times in a lifetime and you develop a better
0: street education of certain words uh fear guilt courage trust backup grief death i mean We have an
3: appreciation for these words much greater than other professions, you know, and uh, you learn that in your your first developmental window. I am convinced of that. The academies, they do their very best to give us the skill sets that we need to survive as we protect and serve. But the reality is, is I think you hone those tools mostly on the fly in real time, making split second decisions. And when you do that you're doing it side by side with brothers or sisters who have already been through their developmental window, or maybe they're a field training officer or a, a first line supervisor and you know you get to pick and choose some of the skill sets they demonstrate to you and you put them in your own individual backpack and as long as you maintain your standard operating procedures for the agency that uh, puts bread on your table, then you can use your own independent eclectic skill sets that are in your backpack and well, Dennis John was one of those people that assisted me in developing my backpack and my developmental window. And, and you graduate that developmental window, you have people in your law enforcement family that you know you can depend upon in any circumstance and you'll cross through any door with them because no matter what's on the other side, it's irrelevant because you're going to be successful and you're going to go home. And when you feel that being reciprocated by members in your family like when you know that they they see you and you're about to go through that door and you know that your presence is making them feel more comfortable and more confident then then you know you you've graduated the developmental window you're there and when you get there you're indebted to quite a few people and uh, I was indebted to no one greater than Dennis John. I can tell you that.
1: Let me pause. Let me, let me jump in there. Right. Right. Because you bring up a, you bring up a fascinating point, Tim, of, of, of how important is it to have that positive influence Uh and, and, and or, or maybe a better question would be how, how important is that influence to those young officers in that critical window of growth? You know, just uh, you, you bring up such a great topic, just right there alone. what, the impact of that growth time period what what would be your opinion on that? Oh, I think it makes or breaks you i I, I think that uh,
3: as as good as the original package is, once you get through the academy and you start your field training program, those first two years are very critical in into in your overall development. And I've seen a few people that we have hired over the years that seem to have all of the uh all the ambition that's necessary. And you look at them if they're gonna be they're gonna be right on the money. And one or two encounters that shake their core, um, have chased them into another profession. And that's fine. I mean, that's good for them, you know. Um sure. may- maybe had they not had those two, three events in the first two, three years and they showed up in year six, seven, and eight, maybe they would have been better prepared, equipped to to balance them. Um, so th- th- it is, you're absolutely correct. It is a very critical window. Yeah. And it's also critical that you, it's also critical that you connect with the right people, you know, because there are people that are better at this job than others, obviously.
1: Absolutely. Absolutely. Sorry. I, let's get back on track there. You, you, so I interrupted you with Dennis.
3: Yeah. So, you know, the irony that we'll do and in, in short track it today is that when I was a detective for Dennis, I decided that it uh, might be a good idea for me to continue my education here in Cattaraugus County and get a master's degree. Because uh at the six or seven year mark, that forensic education that I described that there's a reason we have twenty year retirement, and in the six years that I had spent as a police officer, I had noticed that some of the quality of life and some of the people that I was so indebted to that I had so much respect for and um camaraderie with some of them weren't quite as happy at work as I remembered them being when I first started, and I, I knew. I didn't connect all the dots, you know, Brad, but I, I, I knew that uh, the nature of our job had something to do with it. And I couldn't quite put my finger on it, but it it reminded me that there's probably a reason we have 20-year retirement. And then maybe perhaps I've selected a job to put bread on the table that has a shelf life on people. You know, it, it, We have that in common with the military. And you don't see too many 60-year-old soldiers in the trenches of warfare. Those that are left in the military at that time are far and few between, and they're usually in some insulated at the command post, right? Um, we know they exist, but they're rare. And that happens in our job, too. And I, I wasn't sure if I was going to be one of those people that could do this job for three, four decades and prevent it from having me experience any degradation in the quality of life. Because I'm family guy. And I'm not just a family guy at work with my brothers and sisters. I'm a family man to the family that raised me and the family that I'm raising. And although I took an oath to protect and serve, to do a dangerous job, to make a paycheck, I can never lose focus of the fact that if I'm going to protect and serve to make money, the people I can never forget that I'm responsible to protect and serve most fiercely are the people that love me, the people that I love, my family, at home and if my degradation of life occurs because of my profession and i go home and vicariously share that degradation of life to the people that are depending on me most fiercely to protect them well boy i'm not doing my job and so that was that was the that was the push for me that maybe i should get a masters degree In case at the 20 year mark of this career, I started to experience an attack on my quality of life because being a cop takes a toll. And I didn't want that to have any effect on my ability to be a husband or a father or to stay healthy and run mini triathlon, be a good neighbor and be a coach to my kids. You know, I just I couldn't allow that to happen. So if I needed a ripcord to pull at the 20-year mark and start a new job to make revenue, um, I needed an education. So in Cattaraugus County, where I live at that time, we didn't have the Internet. So there was only one place you could go to school, and that was St. Bonaventure University. And at that time, I was uh, in my first marriage. My ex-wife is a school psychologist, and she was a graduate of the counseling education program at Bonaventure. and uh, And her father was a very prominent psychologist at the time and instructor. So it made it pretty easy for me to choose what to take, right? Because I had, I had a guy that could get me in the program and I had someone at home that could help me with my homework. It didn't quite end well, but... <laughs> 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 Honestly, that's uh, that's how it went down.
2: So, Tim, faith- I got a question for you. Um, yeah. So, I mean, did you ever think that you would end up going that route. I mean, so I, first off, I guess I should ask like in, did you notice those things because you lived in a home with somebody who was a, a psychologist or, or those type of things? Did you notice that in your friends and your colleagues because of her or did you just, no. it just, just from everyday life?
3: No, in the truest sense, Austin, if I can, if I can give you a little bit of a timeline to help this out, right? I met my wife. My first wife, I think in um nineteen ninety-two. I graduated. I went to, I started the academy in eighty-nine. I graduated in nineteen ninety. So I was on a I was working midnights for a couple of years before we even met. And then we dated for a year and a half. We got married in ninety-four. Ninety-six I made detective. So um she was going through her schooling at that time in our early years. So she's not a seasoned psychologist.
0: Mm-hmm.
3: Yeah. although i got psychoanalyzed whether i needed it or not pretty regularly okay <laughs> absolutely that's that's comes what I would with
1: the, uh, comes with comes with the ring
3: yeah 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 anyway <laughs> uh, i believe that fate happens and i believe that tragedies are terrible opportunities to waste and then when something really shitty happens those of us affected the The sooner that we look at it as an opportunity, the better off everybody affected is. And so we're going to tie this together here shortly, okay? Because in 96, I started going back to college because I noticed some stuff going on at work that I couldn't quite put my finger on or put a pulse on. But I knew that the job itself had an impact on some of these people I cared about. I was leery about that happening to me. And if it was, I wanted to preserve the integrity of my ability to be successful in the other roles in life that are more, more important than what I do with a badge. And while I started going to grad school, I realized, I, although my, my intentions for signing up for what I did were shallow, I could not have picked a better curriculum. Because I was chasing rapists and people that were abusing children. Physically and sexually at the time, and I was taking classes in developmental psychology, abnormal psychology, counseling theory, counseling practicum, and I was learning how clinicians will sit down with somebody for weeks at a time, at an hour a clip, and over time develop rapport and and develop an environment with them of trust, so that they can get this person to open up and talk about things that they've never talked with anybody else about before, and these are things that usually people are embarrassed. They're ashamed. They're angry. They're worried about perception of how they're perceived. They're concerned about revenge and you know, these secrets if they come out. And you know, counselors, man, they get they get 15, 20 weeks to do this with people, or even years, right? And cops, we do the same thing, but we do it in one shot, man.
0: You That's may
3: right. yep. you may get one five hour shot to secure the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth from somebody. And <laughs> People lie to police and you get one chance (laughs) and and, and, and you get one chance. And and it's not just offenders that lie. It's victims, right? They're ashamed. They're embarrassed. They're scared. They're worried about revenge and getting uh, 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 victimized by our justice system and all their fears are merited. And what I learned very quickly in my time at Bonaventure was that. uh, There's a time and a place for confrontation. I knew that from police work. And what I learned at Bonaventure is that time and place is almost never in an interview or an interrogation room. You're trying to help somebody through one of their darkest moments. And if it's an offender, you're dealing with somebody that's probably got conduct disorder or antisocial personality disorder. And they have been in more emotional and psychological and physical altercations than half the people in your department. And if you try to go in and out muscle them, you're going to be outmatched. So. I learned that there was a lot of counseling theory and counseling dynamics that went into the skill set of interview and interrogation. And I ended up developing an eight hour course and taught interview and interrogation around New York State for a while, teaching baby cops the dynamics of psychology from St. Bonaventure's Counseling Education Program in a manner to secure the truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth. It ended up being a, a great curriculum for me to take. But
0: the other thing that happened in like, 1999, when I was a detective sergeant, and
3: my chief of detectives was Dennis John, is I started learning about post-traumatic stress disorder at St. Bonaventure. Now, I had been a cop for nine years. Now I, I, My grad school took me four years because I could only afford to take one class a semester at St. Bonaventure, a very expensive, private Franciscan university. So I actually took a part-time job to pay for it. I was teaching criminal justice courses at a junior college, one class a semester, taking that money to pay for my class at Bonas. It took me four years. So I am 10 years, I'm on the cusp of my 10-year mark at being a police officer, halfway to my police pension. I've promoted to detective sergeant, and I'm about to graduate with my master's degree in counseling education. And We start learning about post-traumatic stress disorder. And I was the cop in the back row in the middle so I could have my back against the wall and see all the other students in the class, right? You all know. Right? Oh,
2: yeah. yeah oh, hypervigilance.
3: Yeah, hypervigilance at its best. And uh, I realized that night for the first time, I wasn't the young cop in the back row trying to keep up with all the other budding therapists. I was the guy in the class that knew more about what we were talking about than anyone else in the class because Mm. i
0: could connect the dots austin i now had a suspect i now knew what was and who
3: was exactly responsible for the degradation of quality of life in my brothers and sisters and my law enforcement family and it was called ptsd and i can remember thinking how does this happen How is it possible that I'm halfway to my police pension? That I've been to a six month academy, I've been to a month long supervisor school, I've been to multiple interview and interrogation and basic and advanced juvenile officer school, their officer training. I mean, I've been to a plethora of law enforcement educations, but nobody's talking about PTSD. And post stress disorder is attacking the profession that I've chosen to do at a greater percentage rate than any other profession. Uh, how the hell does this happen? So I decided to try to do something about it because I was teaching at a community college. I was teaching, interview, and interrogation all over the state. And I was, when I graduated from us, they actually offered me a teaching position in the sociology department. So I started teaching criminology and juvenile delinquency for them. So I was teaching to pockets of people that wanted to be cops I was teaching baby cops at the academy, and I was teaching young cops becoming detectives. And if I was teaching Syracuse, New York, interviewing interrogation, I'd take 15 minutes and talk about PTSD. If I was teaching legal ethics at the academy, I'd take 15 minutes and talk about PTSD because no one else was doing it. And if you're going to be a police officer, there are some things you need to know about post-traumatic stress disorder because the question is not, will you? have a chance to dance with post-traumatic stress disorder if you're a cop. The question is really, how many times will you hear the music? But when the music starts, you had better know how to dance. If You're going to be a cop because everybody that loves you is depending on you to most fiercely protect and serve them first. And you have to put your own self in that pack. Self-care. If you don't do that as the baseline of protecting and serving, and you put a badge on then you have entered a profession
2: that is going to chew your ass up. So what what year was this by the way that nobody had talked about PTSD? Yet? Are we talking like 1999? I well, 99 was when I think I got that hardcore
3: revelation. But I graduated with my master's degree in 2001. So it was between 99 and oh one. It was late in my in my degree, when we were talking about PTSD,
0: I know that. And were then you vote? I put.
1: Sorry, no. You sorry. I, I keep going there. I interrupted you.
3: No. So I once I graduated, I put that little cape on and I ran around holding up the DSM-4. And when I was at Bonus it was the DSM-4R. <laughs> right? Now it's now we're at the DSM. Now and we went to the DSM-5, the DSM-5TR. Yep. So I was running around with this DSM and teaching cops that, you know, the diagnostic and statistical manual of mental disorders has 297 disorders and post-traumatic stress is one of them. And it's very unique. There's two things you need to know if you're going to be a cop. Number one, it's the only one in the book that's generated by exposure. There's no other disorder like that. And you've entered a profession that's going to give you the opportunity for that exposure. So you have to know as much about this opponent as possible, this, this constrictive, insidious disorder whose sole purpose it is, is to anchor into your soul. If you give it the window of exposure and it starts to wrap up its tentacles around your soul and squeeze and what it systematically methodically squeezes is your quality of life. And just like a constrictive snake, it takes what it can get and then it will not release it. And the more you give that away, the more you'll never get back. And every loss of quality of life you get, you vicariously share, share down the throats of everybody that loves you, that's depending upon you. It's, it's a vicious cycle. That's the one thing that makes it unique out of the other 296. It's the only one generated by exposure. But the other thing is, it's the only one that's 100% manageable. Out of the entire DSM, PTSD is the only one that's 100% manageable, right? Now there's this current debate that's going on in the helping profession of whether or not it's actually curable. Now, when I went through my education, it was 100% manageable, but there was no cure. Now we have all these new techniques that are currently being used, right? It used to be just cognitive behavioral treatments and individual psychotherapy and group counseling, but now we have cognitive brain spotting. We have Doctors using weed. We've got doctors using psychedelic mushrooms and acid. We've got electric shock treatments, comfort animals. And most promising right now is this EMDR, rapid eye movement techniques, right? And there are people that are advocating right now that successfully timed and delivered EMDR can bring somebody back to where they no longer meet the criteria or threshold of PTSD. And if that's accurate,
2: then we're flirting with the word cure. Right? Well, that's that's what everybody, you know, when I'm working with people, that's what everyone wants. They they want to be cured, right? That's mm-hmm. that's their goal for everything. And, and these are people that aren't familiar with the DSM five or or any of those type of things. They're like, I need you to cure me right now, and I have to have that tough conversation with, like, let's let's work on some other things first before we go there with cure. So I I'm reading right there with you. No, yeah. I
1: absolutely love this portion of the conversation. I've, I've actually had EMDR and brain spotting. Uh, I can't, I can't say that one is necessarily better than the other. My personal experience, uh, they're uniquely different. They're, they were both awesome. They were both incredible uh, to, to lessening the impact of what was going on inside of me as you as, as you eloquently put it, what it anchored in my soul uh, of, of, you know, EMDR did one thing, brain spotting did another. They both were amazing. So, yeah, this is this is fascinating. Such great stuff. Keep going, Tim.
3: Yeah, well, and in, in my presentation, as you know, Brad, I, I liken this to it is an exposure-related injury. Now, the injury is invisible to the naked eye because it is occurs emotionally and psycho and psychologically, right? Although it's invisible to the naked eye, it's it's visual to the trained eye. It's easily diagnosed, right? One uh, one forty-five minute session with a therapist that's worth their salt, you can determine whether or not somebody authentically has it. And what's imperative is the sooner somebody has it, it's important to get it diagnosed because, because it's an injury-generated uh, disorder through exposure. It's like any other injury, right? It, we we all process injury whether the injury is physical emotional or psychological right and if you break your leg and you wait 3 weeks to go get help it's going to be more difficult to recover from well if you meet the threshold sure. for PTSD and you wait 2 years because you work in a profession that encourages you to put duct tape on it and keep your mouth shut it's going to exacerbate and get worse but the good news is is even if you wait 2 years for the diagnosis we believe in the helping profession community that it's 100% management. And now there's some steam, there's some accelerant to this about maybe getting to cured. Enough so that I have become interested in that. And I've actually had EMDR. I'll be honest with you, my jury's out on it. I'm also told that it's kind of important to administer the EDR in a timely fashion. and Some of the more horrific traumatic events that I believe I carry with me today uh, they're they're quite older now, and so maybe that's an impact. And I, but I'm very content with being in a managed state, but, um, hey, man, I still have some bad days. And if I can get to cured, well, that'd be, that'd be wonderful, not just for me, but for my family, and I owe that to my family, right? So I, I'm still chasing it to this day. I'm, I'm still chasing some of the EMDR with a local professional who's a specialist with it,
0: and uh, I'm in it to win it,
3: you know? So I uh, I guess back again now to uh I thought it would make sense to explain the breadcrumb trail of how I got on the speaking circuit. And I was running around giving a fifteen minute blast with the DSM trying um inoculate or insulate through education as many cops as I could.
0: And then I got a text from one of my best friends out of the blue. And uh his death was a byproduct of PTSD, and it was a tremendous learning curve for me because I was running around with 12 years of law
3: enforcement experience or more. 14 years wow. at the time he killed himself. It was 19 years law enforcement experience, and I had spent, you know, five years getting a master's degree, and now I knew quite a bit about this disorder that was attacking my profession and I was running around trying to save people and what I learned was that as much as I knew about PTSD it still had the ability to crawl into my personal world and rip somebody that I loved away from me right underneath my nose and that if I was really
0: going to make a difference I wasn't going to do it in 15 minute windows and it needed to be it needed more attention. And my friend had an awful, awful event occur early in his career. And I talk about it at the end of my presentation, and we can talk about it today
3: if we have time and it's relevant. But it's, it's a, it's, it was so awful, Hollywood can't script it. And in the aftermath of him trying to deal with
0: it on his own, Our administration failed him. When he reached out for help, when there was an opportunity to give him help, he got a lesson. He got a lesson in law enforcement that all too many people have received.
3: Stereotypically, moving backwards in time, that basically reads, if you open your mouth and ask for help for emotional or psychological pain, there are consequences waiting for you that's That was the long stereotype response in our profession, and our agency had a chance to do the right thing and protect and serve one of our own that deserved to be protected and served and uh, they taught him a very valuable lesson because they fucking hurt him. excuse me, they heard him.
1: Uh, this is a safe place for any f-bombs in here tim so So how long after his uh, event? Was that message sent? Was it pretty much immediate? Was there a delay? Did he ask for help? Uh, Ironically, it was years
3: after. Okay. Wow. Do you, do you want me to do the short version of the story, Brad, real
1: quick? I I think so, Austin. Don't you? I think yeah. I think the listeners are I think the listeners are going to be on point now. They're going to want to hear a little bit of it.
3: Okay. Well, in Cattaraugus County, we have three Native American reservation territories. We have the Cattaraugus, Allegheny, and Oil Springs Territory, and they are uh, Iroquois, Seneca, Iroquois nation. Our ancestors here in western New York committed atrocities to the indigenous Seneca tribal people. They forced them onto small parcels of land, called them reservations, and um, signed a treaty promising that we would never again meddle with their government or their affairs. and They would be sovereign nation.
0: And, uh, the state has periodically violated
3: that. And, uh, I grew up on the reservation. I'm not a native, but uh, I mean, if you, if you feel a prejudice from me, it's going to be pro Seneca, uh, just because of where I grew up. Okay. Uh, The Seneca people have largely moved beyond the atrocities. They haven't forgotten about the sovereignty and they should not. And if you're going to patrol on the territory, you need to be respectful. Of the sovereignty. Having said that, there's a small few radical Senecas that uh, they're still upset about the atrocity and they're entitled to be. And they look for opportunities to be a martyr for the cause. They, uh, and these people typically do not like cops. Uh, they're angry. They usually have criminal histories. Um, and I'm not trying to prejudice anybody. I mean, we we're talking about a very, very small few people, but they're dangerous folk. And when you run into one of them on the territory, they perceive you as a foreigner in a police uniform trying to enforce white man law on the territory that they didn't sign up for. And it's their nation. And it can become volatile and dangerous. And this very small percentage that I speak of, well, they, they, they disliked Dennis John more than any other cop because he was one of them. He was uh, enrolled Seneca. And they had nicknames for him. They called him an apple or a radish because they considered him red on the outside, but white on the inside. And he was the first person to go through the academy to become certified to enforce New York state laws here in Cattaraugus County as a deputy sheriff, which meant he was going to enforce some of those laws on the territory. And he also married a woman that was not an enrolled Seneca. And they had a baby and they lived in the heart of the territory. And they didn't like that either. So one night when Dennis was working midnights for us, one of these known enemies to him went to his house, paid his wife a visit, brutally, physically, and sexually assaulted her. Then he tried to kill her with a shovel. He knocked one eye out of her head, left her with a permanent traumatic brain injury. To this day, she has no recollection of the assault. He passed out drunk, nude, in their bed. The attack failed to kill her. She woke up with no knowledge of what has transpired, nude, bloodied, missing an eye. And she crawled to a phone and she dialed 911. We got her the location and we sent our closest car, which happened to be her husband. And you, I look into the heart of men and women when I do my presentation and you can see what people envisioning themselves walking into that and what, what they might do, right? Well, I'll tell you what Dennis did. He
0: did the right thing. And if you knew him, you would have already known that that's what he did. You know, I think he kicked the guy a couple of times.
3: He handcuffed him to a wall heater. He secured an ambulance for his wife. He took care of her injuries, took care of their baby, and he uh, called for backup. And the awful part of this, in addition to that, is that many months later, uh, a talented defense attorney and an incompetent district attorney who ended up losing his job in the next election, largely because he lost this case. There was a full acquittal. There was no evidence of forced entry. The weapon that was used was a shovel that belonged to Dennis. Um, The sexual assault exam kit was negative, probably because he was too drunk to perform. And there was no memory recollection whatsoever of the attack because of a traumatic brain injury.
0: There, he he walked long, short of him. And so many years later, not many, maybe three, four years later,
3: I guess, Brad, is the thing I'm getting to answer your question, is uh, Dennis was assigned to a midnight shift. A DWI shift. It was like 7 p.m. to 3:30 a.m. He did this for like 3 years and it was he was assigned to this with one other deputy and the two of them were together all the time. On weekends, Friday Saturday nights in the same car. And it became very clear to the other deputy that every time Dennis came to work he talked about what happened with his wife. So much so that after years of it the deputy confronted him and said, "Hey man, I'm worried about you." You know, what happened was ungodly, awful, but don't lose track of the fact that you did everything right. You don't own how it ended and you've got to let this go. It's still, it's still haunting you. It's still affecting you. And you've got to put this down and get on with your life, man. I'm worried about you. His response was, uh, you don't understand it. It won't let go of me. And they bantered back and forth. And he says, you know, you don't understand. I don't go through five minutes of any hour of any day. And I, where I'm not reminded about it. If I, if I sleep, I have nightmares about it. If I, if I forget about it momentarily, I look at my wife's scar and fake eye and I'm reminded about how I failed. I, I shouldn't have been a cop. I shouldn't have been a cop on the res. I, I should have protected my wife from my enemies. I should have fucking killed him. I mean, I should, have, I should, I should, I should have constantly just stuck in the mud, you know, and the other deputy, continuing to talk to him. And he kept saying, this is what I'm talking about, man. You've got to let it go. You've got to get past this. What he took from you and your family is gone. Don't let him keep taking it from you. Let it go. And he said a very important line.
0: He said, let me explain it to you another way. It won't let go of me. And I've had no peace in years." I've had the inability to rest.
3: Let me ask you a question, he said to the other deputy. He said, have you ever been
0: so tired that you look forward to death so you can rest? And he says, Jesus, Dennis, you're scaring me. Kind of sounds like you've thought about suicide. And he says, brother.
3: I can't tell you how many times I've thought about getting this patrol car going as fast as it will and taking a hard right into the S-curves of the, the reservoir. If you know where we patrol, that's a suicide. That deputy did the right thing. He went to work the next day, pulled an old school lieutenant aside. The lieutenant called Dennis in and confronted him whether Dennis was honest with him. And the lieutenant's response was, uh, give me the keys to the patrol car. You're no longer authorized to operate a patrol cruiser. Until further notice, I want you to report to dispatch in your personal vehicle with the duty bag. We'll call in the closest car. You'll ride in the passenger seat in a two-man car until further notice because I'm worried about you. Do you understand? I promise you he didn't run around and tell every other deputy why he could no longer operate a patrol cruiser. And I would suggest to you that it ostracized him. But what it taught him was if you're hurting emotionally or psychologically, you don't speak of it because there's consequences waiting for you in law enforcement. Keep your mouth shut. Keep your mouth shut. Don't talk about it. Right? Yep. This that there was the opportunity,
0: Brad. There was the opportunity to help him develop resiliency skill sets that could have saved him.
3: And then also had him be a tremendous resource for the rest of our brothers and sisters when it became their turn down the road. Tragedies are terrible opportunities to waste. And they wasted this one. And they also taught him. You know, you, We're one-time learners. We're behavioral creatures, man. You, you, you get hurt real bad one time. You don't need a second lesson. And it registered deep within him. And even though he had a handful of people that would have done anything
0: for him, me being one, in 2009, he didn't give us a chance because of the lesson he had learned in the mid-80s. And so, somehow when I became sheriff at his death, In my processing of knowing that my prior administration had failed him,
3: somehow it's now become my responsibility to try to do my best to make sure that doesn't happen
0: anywhere else on somebody else's watch. I owe that to Dennis. Thanks for sharing
1: the story, Tim. That's a that's a lot right there. What was the time frame? Uh, wh- when was his wife attacked? What year was that?
3: It would have been in the early nineteen eighties. He went to the academy in nineteen seventy eight, and he was the first enrolled Seneca to graduate our, the academy in our area. He was the first one. So he almost
1: three decades. You're t- you're talking about carrying that to almost three decades. Is that what you're? You're saying?
2: Yeah. Wow. And in silence for, you know, twenty nine of those,
0: right? Well, yeah. I mean, when he was processing
3: it within the first handful of years, he was subconsciously reaching for help. Yeah. And there was a missed opportunity. And quite frankly, that missed opportunity <laughs> it became the coffin seal.
0: You know, it it, it solidified that man, I'm never going to talk about it again. You know, mm-hmm. and, and and he was a one-time learner. He didn't. And he had,
3: he had brothers that would have done anything for him. Not just me.
1: So there's a couple of little rabbit holes that we could go down, but, but uh, just for uh, preservation of time, I'm going to kind of put us back. Thanks for sharing that story that I think that's really important. Uh, because these are, these are happening out there all the time. Uh, Different details, uh, different names, different topics. Same impact. Same impact. Yeah. Is, that, is that fair? I mean, these are these are happening all all around us. Yeah. So so kind of getting us back. Thanks for sharing. Getting us back. Your passion now is you're recognizing your 15 minutes is not enough. So now, no,
0: I I believe that knowledge is power, and I believe that there's a
3: confrontation that needs to take place at the administrative level in law enforcement. And there needs to have a administrative led culture change, where there's a much greater emphasis placed on protecting and serving those that have chosen to protect and serve. And so uh, that's that's actually written right on my challenge coin. And I usually uh, make people earn a challenge coin at my trainings and I I, I put two or three people on a hot seat and they earn their coin. But that's, that's, that's my mantra, right? To protect and serve those that have chosen to protect and serve. And a large part of that is through education and developing resources within the agency. So here in Cattaraugus County, we're still trying to get, you know, the best officer wellness program that we can. And it's not, unfortunately, it's not a popular time to be doing that sometimes because of what we have experienced in the last couple of years and the scrutiny that law enforcement has found itself under. So I have to go up on a legislative floor and ask for hundreds of thousands of dollars for an officer wellness program. At the same time, pockets of our country are talking about defunding police. And I live in a pretty conservative state, and sometimes you have to pick and choose your battles as the elected sheriff of of what victories you want. I have been trying to get an officer wellness program for about six years pretty aggressively. Last year was the first year that I have a six-figure digit put in a budget line, and it's not enough to run the program that I want, right? Now, this is in addition to, by the way, a peer support program that we have. And uh, one of the reasons I believe that my lecture is successfully received is because of street credibility. And the reason cops will listen to another cop is because cops, no, no, no cop can bullshit another cop. Yep. So peer support teams work. Now I got 219 employees in my agency. And that means I can put a great peer team together. I got both genders represented. I got three different divisions, corrections, communications, patrol represented. I've got first line supervisor. I got a female lieutenant running it, right? I got people that have championed trauma that are on the team that have a special skill set, right? But because we're 219 agency strong, I've got people in my agency that won't use our peer support team because they know who they are. So you have to have your peer support team networked with other peer support teams so you can still do it anonymously. We also are developing an app and we're taking advantage of social media platforms where you can do peer support anonymously through that forum. Now that might not fly with some of the old school guys like you and me, right? Yep, for sure. But <laughs> look us now on a podcast, right? <laughs> so never say never.
1: But- never say never.
3: That's right. But uh you know our, our our new millennial generation they're much more inclined to pick up a a smartphone and, and and get involved that way and and get some available. But this uh this money that we got we put into our budget last year and we talk about this in my trainings now about implementing these things. What are the takeaways, you know, in in making this administrative culture change? And what we're doing is uh we're going to hire in 2024. We're going to develop the program this year, and in 2024 we're going to hire a director of officer wellness. That's going to be a sheriff's office employee, and their job is going to be to look out for all of the staff. And it was quite frankly, it was an easier sell than I thought when I went upstairs and I I reminded all of them that we want we run a 150 bed inmate facility, and we have a psychologist, we have a medical doctor, we have three nurses, and we have medical nurses and mental health nurses in part. I said, we, we have 10 employees that we're paying for their salary and benefits for to care for 150 inmates. But I have 219 employees and we're not doing anything for them. And so the ball is rolling in Cattaraugus County. We're going to get a director of officer wellness, full-time position. Their sole purpose is to focus on the physical, emotional, and psychological welfare of all of our staff. We're going to develop welfare days, wellness days, and send people to them all the time. It's going to be part of our routine accredited training to make sure that everybody is getting the best up-to-date information that they can on officer wellness. And uh, we're also going to have every officer have a wellness check annually. That's every division, corrections, communications, and patrol, right? And it's the hope. It's the hope that if they start manifesting issues, that we identify them sooner rather than later while they're smaller, right? Addressing the injury while it's more easy to manage before it becomes exacerbated, right? Sure. And it's our hope that by by doing that, you know, the big question when you talk about this, especially from administrators or union guys, is like well, what are you going to do if somebody you know trips the wire if they if they hit a certain threshold and well then we're going to remove them because if if they're a danger to themselves or others they can't be a they can't be a patrol officer but the the whole point in theory of the program is to never let them get there right some of these horrific sure. events that have given a black eye around the nation i would suggest to you Maybe they'd stop happening quite as often as they are if we were doing an officer wellness program and annual checks on everybody that was a first responder.
2: Hey, Tim, are you are you also bringing it into the academy to to let these officers know what signs and symptoms are in themselves and, and their fellow officers? Some academies
3: are. Um, I get brought into some academies. They've made it a a pretty regular thing. There's a lot of really good textbooks out there that are on the market right now that bridge the gap of PTSD and first responder and law enforcement. One of them is called I Love a Cop by Ellen Uh, Kirschman. I Love a Cop, what police fan.
0: Yeah. Uh,
3: Victoria Newman, um, a chip on my shoulder. She was she's the spouse of a California highway patrol. And that book is more specific specifically written from the viewpoint of spouses, which was really good. Um, So, like, I have a couple different academies that bring me back in regularly. One of them does this fantastic concept. They call it Significant Other Night. So they bring me in. I do my four-hour presentation. They give all of the members that show up one of those books that we just mentioned. None of the cadets are there. It's either their spouse, their girlfriend or boyfriend, or their parents. And they're just trying to let them get ready for, hey, this is what your kid signed up for. This is what your young partner signed up for. And we want to have you have the resources that you need too, right. But I am also speaking to uh, police academies as well. So to answer your question, I think that that education is much greater today than even 10 years ago when I first started lecturing. But it's not anywhere near where it needs to be, and I'm still on the lecture circuit because I'm trying to throw gas on the fire
1: hey tim for a second i'd I'd like to to back up here and talk uh you hit you hit a couple of points and I'm gonna put some words to it but uh you have you have such a great perspective because you did frontline work and you were in the trenches uh but now you're actually the guy right you're 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 the head dog, you're the decision maker you're the you're the one with the white hat on so this perspective flow uh and i think i think for those listening maybe want to hear a leadership perspective at whatever line level they may be at but uh, i want to talk about administrative betrayal and i don't want to talk i don't want to bitch and whine uh, i i i want to i really want to convey a message of of why it's important to to um combat the administrative betrayal and and your perception or maybe even Uh, you know, leadership demonstration of how you exercise that, how you, how you ensure uh, the prevention of this administrative betrayal uh, concept, because it's happening over and over and over. I mean, you just, you talked to uh, these wounded officers and I'm not talking about physical injury. I'm talking about the one we're talking about, which is, you know, talons in the soul and not letting go type injury. Uh, Give us a little thought on the, 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 you know, how do you stay out of that administrative betrayal piece for maybe some leaders out there, young leaders, old leaders, they're looking at that.
0: Yeah, well, you know, if you keep your eyes open, you know,
3: anybody that's egotistical should never put stripes on their on, on, on their sleeves or brass on their collar, right? Because, um, you know, power doesn't create corruptness,
0: but it exposes it. So sure. if, you've got a, if you've got a tendency to, to have a dent in your moral compass, giving you power is going to expose it, right? And so sure. I think that to answer your question best, I'll tell you every now and then somebody will be brave enough.
3: And clearly they are in a supervisory role when I'm doing my lecture and they'll say, sheriff. Are you not concerned about the message you're sending to the masses about this warm, <laughs> blue, fuzzy climate you try to create? Because certainly, Sheriff, if you do what we if we do what you suggest and we put, uh, you know. Helping hands on a person for time and distance to get them through the event, you know, aren't Certainly, Sheriff, you're going to run into people that try to manipulate the system and get a free paycheck on 207C, and they're going to abuse it. And I say, man, you're absolutely correct. I'm so thankful you asked that question. And obviously, you're, you're a cop's cop, because I can smell the shine on your badge, pal. But I'm going to make an encouraging <laughs>
0: statement.
3: Keep shining it. Because I want, I want to, I want to keep talking about what you just mentioned. Because what what else could we call that? What what else could we could we call an officer in your agency
0: who is feigning a mental disorder to get a free paycheck? Yeah, you know, I, I think across the country
3: we could unilaterally call that a criminal. That's a crime. That's stealing. And your job as an administrator, if you do what I'm suggesting, will allow you to snuff those people out of your agency. And if that's their mentality, if that's their capability, they don't deserve to wear
0: the badge. Flush them out. Mm -hmm. I've done this. I have fired people. It's easy. It's not just easy
3: if you get a therapist worth their salt to determine whether or not somebody has PTSD
0: authentically it's also pretty easy to prove that they're doing it dishonestly that they're pretending
3: and you get a second opinion you get a third opinion you get a legal action and you you either fire them or potentially arrest them if you have to right so administrative betrayal you know not doing what you should be doing um i'd like to think that the time for that is coming to an end. It's not happening as fast as I'd like to see, and I'm I'm near the end now, much closer to the end than I am the beginning. Um, and I don't know if I'll ever see it at a satisfactory level before I, you know, put my badge in the shadow box. But I pray, you know, that my uh, my 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 soon-to-be 13-year-old son, out of my four children, is, is the one that I'm most worried the most about being a cop (laughs) because he's, he's, he reminds me of me (laughs) and uh, his name is Bodie. And, And listen, man, if Bodie becomes a police officer in 10 years, he will be better taken care of than any of us ever were. We're moving the right direction,
0: but we have, we still have to put our work clothes on because there's a lot of work to do still.
1: Well, and in addition to that, you did, you actually, uh, you actually absolutely did. Uh, I think, and in, in what a wonderful conversation. Let me kind of, let me kind of give you the opportunity to wrap this up a little bit, just uh, with a couple things. If you had, a, I know we shortened your presentation, but I'm, man, I'm so glad you were on here. What a great, what a great Same. conversation. If you had... Uh, you know, a, a a line or two message out here to the listeners that that maybe this may be resonating with them, saying, you know what, i I've, I've got them, I've got the talons in my soul. How do I, what do I do now? What does what does Tim Whitcomb tell them? What does Sheriff Whitcomb say to those folks out there about next step? What do they do?
0: Do your job. If you protect and serve. The
3: foundation of that job is to protect and serve most fiercely the people
0: that love you and the people you love. And you put yourself in that pack. Self-care. That is the bottom. If, the, if, if there's a pyramid level of
3: priorities in the protect and serve food chain, the bottom level, the base, the foundation is that. And if you're feeling the talons in your soul, somewhere along the line, they got in. And maybe it was years ago. Maybe it was last night, right? But the important thing is, is you recognize it. You identify it. And you also recognize that it's a normal reaction to an abnormal event. Remember that line.
0: It's a normal reaction to an abnormal event. And it's an injury, and an injury can be managed 100%. And I would just say this, anybody with PTSD deserves to be set free. I know this from firsthand account. Anybody with PTSD deserves to be set free,
3: and anybody who loves somebody with PTSD needs them to
2: be set free. Absolutely. Tim, that's, I mean, the way you just phrased that, I don't think, I've been to a lot of speakers and I've been to a lot of presentations and I don't think anyone's ever phrased it that way. Do do your job, but phrased in a way of this, this is what you do to get better. And and if you're okay with that, I'd like to steal it and spread it a little bit, you know, spread that message. Amen. Cheers. we're, We're
0: the same mission save and help people that's it
1: tim how do uh how do people get a hold of you how do if somebody wants to have tim sheriff tim wickham out for a speaking engagement or a or a uh, maybe they have a follow-up question maybe there's some leaders out there that want some wisdom from tim wickham uh how do people get a hold of you
3: well you know i have to win a popularity contest every 4 years so i <laughs> So I don't advertise all that much because it could be used against me. But I do oh, lecture sure. a couple times a month, and the easiest way to find me is at work. My 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 primary function, my primary responsibility, and my focus is the sheriff of Cattaraugus County, and I, I'm fiercely protective of that job. But my email at work is t s Whitcomb. That's W H I T C O M B at catco.org, org, And a lot of times people will reach out to me and say, hey, what are you doing for your office of wellness? Is there any way I can get in touch with your Lieutenant, Melanie Shirakis? And because we've, we've worked really hard at it for about seven, eight years now, and we're really steamrolling now. We're going to have a fantastic program within a year or two that I'm going to be very happy about. It's I'm excited about it. But if we can help any other agency that's trying to do the same thing, or if another agency, since he hears this and they just accomplished something they want to put on our radar, man, I'm all ears. Reach out because we're all in this together,
2: you know? And that just so you know, Tim, that has happened uh, with this podcast. We've had also Indianapolis PD on here and um, the reaction that that got to help build the peer support teams for a couple of different other cities nationally has happened. So I'm hoping that that does this, this conversation does result in somebody emailing you saying, Hey, look, we heard what you said, and and we want to help build a peer support team that uh, will work for us.
1: I hope Tim, so, too. Tim, thank you so much for taking time off of uh, your busy schedule and your day and your family to come on here and uh, share a little insight, wisdom, especially the story, how impactful the story is. I love you, brother. I hope to see you soon. Thank you so much for coming on here. Appreciate you.
3: Yep, yeah, love you too, brother. Listen, uh, thank you for the opportunity and uh, God bless y'all. Be safe.
1: Thank you for listening to this segment of No One Fights Alone. No One Fights Alone is sponsored
2: by Chateau Recovery is a 16-bed treatment facility nestled in the foothills of the Wasatch Mountains in Midway, Utah. Chateau's First Responder Resiliency Program is designed to treat the unique challenges and issues that first responders encounter in the course of their careers. Chateau's comprehensive and highly individualized approach to treatment addresses more than just the presenting issues. It addresses the why. Each of their seasoned, trauma-trained, and culturally competent therapists utilize evidence-based, specialized therapies to treat trauma at its core and enable clients to begin the healing process while developing a resilient and healthy relationship with stress. Chateau Recovery is trusted by departments and agencies from around the country to treat responders and veterans. In fact, it is one of only a handful of facilities nationwide that is vetted and approved to treat members of the Fraternal Order of Police. For more information, or to speak to a representative, go to ChateauRecovery.com or call 888-507-5031.
0: No One Fights Alone is also sponsored by First Responder Trauma Counselors. First Responder Trauma Counselors are subject matter experts in proactive behavioral health care for frontline workers through their National Peer Support Academy. This 40-hour All Badges, All Uniforms, and All Scrubs educational experience helps to create caring, honest, and
2: empathetic peer support relationships with your fellow frontline workers. The FRTC National Peer Support Academy is taught by actual first responders who have gone back to school to become culturally competent, licensed behavioral health clinicians that teach from lived experiences, not just theories from books. This fast-paced, immersive educational academy will not just change your life it will help you save the lives of others. For additional details, visit 991overwatch.org or call 970-222419-3. This could be the most life-changing
0: academy you'll ever